Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, where we talk about Jewish topics, issues. This episode is a very special one to me. Thank you so much to Carly Chadash for helping me outline and prepare for this episode. I also want to shout out to Intimate Judaism, which is another Jewish coffeehouse amazing podcast that you should definitely check out. And a reminder that I am a podcasting coach. I help podcasters launch. I help them monetize. I help brands monetize. So keep sending me clients now that the Chagim are over. I am ready to get right back into it and help as many of you and your friends I hope you had a beautiful Chag. I did, and thank you for giving me the time to rest and not focus on the podcast, because here we go, this one was worth waiting for. I am so grateful to be here today. I feel like I can say, I should say, Ashechianu for doing an episode like this from Sex Ed or What I Wish My Kala Teacher Taught Me. I think both of these titles are so excellent. I couldn't choose which one. We'll see which one ends up on the title. And I'd like to introduce our panelists. We'll start with Carly Khadash, who you already know. We just had her on for the Mikvah special. So Carly Khadash is a licensed social worker, sex therapist. She's also the Mikvah director in Philadelphia. We have Yonina Rubinstein here, who is a certified sexuality educator and counselor based in Israel. She works with both front populations and secular populations. And we have Yafa Paltion back again, who is a public lecturer, a Kala teacher, who is also a mikvah attendant, a big Instagram sensation. We have lots of perspectives here. We have moms here. We have educators, therapists. We are bringing all these forces together to talk about one of the biggest taboo subjects, especially for Orthodox women, on sex, sexuality, and how to bring this and educate the next generation around these topics. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's start with the first question. At what age do you recommend parents to start talking to their kids about sexuality, sex, self-pleasure? Should we be teaching anything pre-college classes? And how much is appropriate? The idea of some women get married or learn about certain parts of their bodies as they're about to embark on using those parts of their bodies for the first time. And that could be a very big gap, a very big transformation. And I'd like to hear from you, what do you think the ideal is? And in light of my unorthodox life, do you have any other comments you would add to that? Yafa, would you like to go first? The first thing you asked was at what age do you recommend parents start talking to their kids about sex? And truthfully, I think from when they're newborns, because it doesn't start with talking, it starts with teaching. And I think that it's super important to show our children, even as they're babies, that touch is something that could be, that is loving, touch is something that's endearing, and touch is something that's safe and healthy. And I think that the more we touch our babies in, in a loving way and in a nurturing way, 
the healthier they will relate to touch as they get older. Yonina, would you like to add anything? I want to support what Yafa said. A lot of times parents ask me, I run a Facebook group for Jewish parents who want to teach their kids about sexuality, and I run a course for parents. And a lot of times I get parents whose kids are starting puberty at the age nine. And they say to me, I know it's early, but I want to be proactive and get started early. And I'm always super happy for them. But I also think to myself, like, it's not too early, right? There's a, a joke or a story about someone who came to the rabbi and asked, when should we start learning about chinuch for our kids? And the rabbi said 20 years ago when you were starting to raise, you know, figure out your way in life. And it's really the same for sexuality. I see so much the way the parents relate to their body, to their positive body image, to their relationships and to their sex life and their sexuality has an impact on kids. And I know this is a little longer than a minute, but it's really important to differentiate between sex and sexuality, right? Sex can be intercourse. And when we're saying teach your kids sexuality from age zero, we're talking about the broader term of sexuality, which includes so, so much more. Thank you. Carly. I just want to add what uh, to what Yonina just said about differentiating sex and sexuality. I think it's a really important distinction. And I think that it also helps to provide a healthy framework for kids to start to understand themselves in the uh, sexual sense in a way that's not like a ew, like that's gross. I have to do that with a boy or I have to do that with a girl when I get married, but more about like how their uh, body sending messages related to themselves. And I think that that's something that um, we saw in the My Unorthodox Life, that that was completely missing from Julia Hart's experience and from her education in that she didn't realize that pleasure was something that she could pursue sexually on her own or in a relationship. And I really wonder, you know, if she had grown up in a structure where she was given messages about body autonomy, about sexuality, about curiosity, and about what it feels like to touch your own body or to have your body touched by somebody else, whether her experience might have been different. I think that as somebody who is working clinically with couples, that's something where we often start the interventions is like relearning what feels good and what doesn't first by ourselves and then with a partner. I would agree, start as early as possible. It's not as much about Telling, it's more about showing and modeling healthy behaviors in terms of touch and safety and relating to yourself sexually, and then also providing the framework for language and curiosity as people get older. When you say relating to yourself sexually, are you talking about the parent to themselves or teaching the child to them? It's both, really. I think all of us on this panel have kids. So I'm sure that we all see our kids, you know, when they're starting to discover that they have body parts, you know, when they have this curiosity and they'll start self-stimulating, like in the bathtub or in bed or before nap time, you know, that's a very developmentally necessary experience for a child to have in order for their sexual identity to develop. And stifling that can have really serious long-term ramifications growing up. You know, ignoring it is better than addressing it in a negative way, but providing a platform to say like, you know, yeah, sometimes parts of our bodies feel different when they're touched or when you touch them yourself. And this is a safe way for you to explore that, you know, by yourself 
in a private space. Don't let anybody else touch your body. You know, your body belongs to you. That language, that's the first place to have that conversation and protecting your child's bodily autonomy can help them develop a healthy sense of sexuality later on in life too. Thank you. So I want to make sure we're not going off on a big tangent, but I do want to differentiate the responsibility parents have when we are talking about uh, self-touch to boys versus girls. I know Intimate Judaism has done a lot on this topic, but as a from mom or dad, what do you tell a son if you see them engaging or pursuing? And they could be very... I want to make a very important distinction that as adults, we aren't always aware of. Our young children's sexuality is not the same as adult sexuality. When kids go through puberty, their hormones move them through a process where they are moving into adult sexuality and experiencing uh, sexual stimulation and desire or awakening when our kids, and there are even images of babies in utero stimulating their genitals, when our kids are touching their private parts, they're not doing it because they're turned on. They're not doing it in terms of what we consider masturbation and what is halakhically forbidden. There are halakhic boundaries in different communities that are recommended to teach kids even at younger ages to help them, you know, when they get to be at an age where they are sexually mature, to not have a habit of stimulating their, their genitals. But when our kids are rubbing themselves against, you know, their, their teddy bear or holding the shower head against their vulva, it's not be, it's not a sexual behavior. And a lot of times as parents, we get triggered because we start freaking out like, oh my gosh, what is my kid doing? They must have seen this somewhere. Maybe they were cosmetic abused, like what's happening. It's a really natural behavior and it's not It doesn't come from the same place as adult sexuality. So halakhically, the the response is also different. The attitude, the the whole approach isn't the same halakhic issue as when we become teenagers. Yafa. I think it's important also to understand that sometimes when when we turn something into an issue, that's when it becomes an issue. And I have found that with with especially younger kids um, exploring themselves in that way, I choose not to say anything because why turn it into an issue? It's such a healthy, normal part of their development. When your kid picks their nose, it's the same kind of idea. How many, you know, you can't keep telling them, stop picking your nose. They'll figure out to stop picking their nose as they get older. You know, they'll they'll figure out what's appropriate, what's not. The only thing I do think is helpful to a child is if you see them exploring themselves in the middle of the living room, you know, then we can teach them about boundaries that there are certain times and places we can touch ourselves when we clean ourselves when we're in the shower and kind of teach them like that. Like, and this is when it's okay to touch ourselves. Yes. Clean yourself very well in the shower, but in the living room, we don't just go to the bathroom in the living room, right? Because there are certain parts of ourselves that are meant to be used in certain places, not in other places. So teaching them boundaries about privacy, not shame. But other than that, I don't think we should make it into an issue because it really isn't one. This is, you know, we have a saying in our, in our house, we say private parts in private places. And that just helps them connect that and it makes so much sense. It's so simple. So now that we've addressed what we should be doing from the beginning, how we raise our kids as sexual beings, just like as human beings from the day they're born, let's talk about children who are already older and we may have missed doing that when they were born. 
perhaps they are about to go for college classes. What do we have to teach them at that point? What's necessary to teach? And maybe let's talk about what's not being taught enough and how much is okay. We don't want to overwhelm them. What information has to be downloaded or uploaded? Nina. I feel like there was a huge jump that we just made from talking about teaching your kids infancy to be like, okay, they're about to get married. What do you need to quickly before, you know, I'm like thinking of a scene in Bridgerton where like the mother literally in the middle of the wedding, Kilo and the Kherayufud like pulls her daughter aside and she's like, so listen, this is how babies are made. There are so, so many opportunities before then. And I really think that if a person is a few months before the wedding, starting Kala or Fasan teachers, and they haven't had any sort of education beforehand, it will be very hard to create a positive, empowered experience for them to go into their marriage. There's so many other things going on at that point in life. It's really a tricky situation like that. And two is, this is something a lot of times we're not aware of, but not talking about it is also sending a message. So we might think, our kids grew up so sheltered and so protected and they're so innocent. And now they're only going to learn the beauty of it a minute before they get married. They have been picking up messages, whether we are aware of it or not, their whole life about their body, about relationships, what's expected of them, about knowing there's something that married people do, but no one has ever talked to them about it. They already have some sort of attitudes and information. We will go back to more healthy, ideal things, but let's go from one extreme to the other. Okay, Francisca, I've taken this challenge. Like, as we were talking, I keep on going back to the original question, and I, I, I wanted to see it as like, if I get a call from someone who said, my daughter's getting married tomorrow, she just came to me crying and said she has no clue what's going to happen Asked like, when she gets home from her wedding, can you please sit down with her for two hours and do like, a quick sex ed, quick physiology and anatomy of women and men. What are these body parts? And like, what happens? How do they work? Uh, talk to her about how it's supposed to feel good. And there's no pressure to do anything that she does not want to do. Even if she might have heard that uh, halakhically, she needs to make sure her husband doesn't ejaculate outside of her body or that she needs to consummate her marriage through intercourse on the first night of wedding to bring her other halakhic sources that show that there really is no pressure to do anything she doesn't want. Talk about lube and recommend using that the first night. And then to really put a lot of emphasis on the fact that our sexuality is a journey and it's going to take time. It's just a new area of life that her and her partner are now embarking on and they're going to explore it together. And just like they are Ishvisha in every area of their life, this is another area where they're partners and learning and exploring each other's bodies and to, to know that she can ask for help, there are resources to help her. And it's, it's a process of growing and changing. Thank you. Carly? I think that one of the big missing pieces, and I've seen this from working both in Chinuch and also doing couples counseling, is that sometimes there's like a general discomfort with someone's body in general, and that being familiar with your body and also um, with your body parts, your genitalia, And then also um, being familiar with like the urges and desire and hormone fluctuations that come along with having arousal and sexual attraction and sexual desire is something that can feel very uncomfortable and vulnerable for someone when they first get married. 
as parents and particularly as mothers with women, um, with young girls, providing a framework of familiarity. You know, like um, I'll never forget that scene. I think I told you this when we were mapping out this podcast in Unorthodox where um, Shira Haas's uh, Kala teacher is telling her how to do a badika and she's showing her the badika cloth and she's like, I don't have that hole. Like I don't have that opening. And, um, and me, you know, like seeing my clients echoed in that. Um, I, you know, I have a friend who told me the first time she realized she was going to have to be undressed in front of her husband, she had a panic attack. She didn't realize that in order to be able to have sex with him, she was going to have to be completely unclothed and being comfortable with your body, being comfortable, being in that state of vulnerability really starts at home. That's not to say that people should parade around unclothed, obviously. Um, But I think giving people permission to have curiosity and to address those feelings of arousal and to talk about, you know, what makes you feel good when you're wearing this or what makes you feel not good sexually, but just confident feeling like yourself and then having the language to communicate that is really important. Modeling behaviors, your kids are going to get the messages about what a healthy marriage looks like from the relationship that you show them in your home. So, um, you know, if you see nice conversation and nice communication between your parents, or if you see a lot of chaos and, and fighting, you know, that's not to say that you shouldn't argue in front of your kids. I think every healthy marriage argues and every healthy marriage knows how to repair an argument. And doing that in front of children is also really important education as well. Before we go into the awkward and weird, I want to talk about something that I don't know if this has ever been discussed publicly, but anyone who is more modern and is exposed to media and movies and film, there's this understanding that there is something that's that you start exploring when you're younger and it's very normalized in the secular world to start engaging in some sort of touch with the opposite sex when you are in your teenage years and later on. And the idea of you build up to sexual intercourse at uh, hopefully at a time where you feel safe and it's consensual and it's a healthy relationship. That's the ideal in the secular, through the secular lens, through the, from Hashkafa, through the Yiddishkeit lens, it's nothing and then it's everything. And that is ideally the healthiest way. How do we shift the paradigm? How do we explain this to people who may who may have grown up with movies who feel like it's too much going from absolutely nothing to everything when something was so forbidden your whole life, you are just programmed to cover yourself up in one night. You just need to completely unclothe and feel you probably never did that in front of your, your girlfriends who who are girls. And suddenly you have this person you've never touched before. Suddenly you're removing your clothes. That can seem like a huge disparity. Again, anyone who grew up, who did not watch movies, and maybe they're not listening to this podcast for the same reason, they they don't connect with that and that's okay. But I want to like bring in people who grow up with mixed messages who may feel like it's unsafe or unnatural to go from zero to everything. How do we prepare for that? Carly? In psychology, there's actually a phenomenon that's studied. Um, it's called the Madonna horror complex. And the idea is that you're supposed to be like this perfect, buttoned up, innocent, kind of childlike woman. And then you get married and something happens during the marriage ceremony. And then you're supposed to be like an all-knowing, sexy, 
completely out there individual in the bedroom where like this knowledge is just divinely ordained somehow during a marriage ceremony. And you're supposed to be able to make that switch in like a 30 minute ceremony. And we know practically that that's not always the case. You know, I think that there's a few ways to address it. And I think it's actually one of the reasons that Tahara Samishbacha can actually be incredibly protective because there is this nida period right after the initial sexual contact where both partners can take space from one another and learn how to be friends and learn how to live together without there being any additional pressure of intercourse, like in that honeymoon period that is so pressurized in the secular world. So I think that's one facet. And I know people have really complicated relationships with Tahar Samishbacha, and I would feel like I was being inauthentic if I didn't mention that here in that same sentence as well. But I do think that it is one thing that we can keep in mind about the like you said, the the healthiest attitude that this is the healthiest way as according to Torah. And then I think the other hand is who says that it has to go from nothing to everything all in one night. I have a client who told me that she and her husband did not have sex on their wedding night. And instead they spent the whole week kind of getting to know each other, exploring each other, using that week. And she said they like sat in their underwear and ate pizza in the bedroom. And like, that is one of the happiest memories that she has from her first week of marriage. And it's such a beautiful idea. You know, the idea that like you have autonomy, you can make decisions. And there's also a way to do that that is within halacha. That's still the preferred way of doing things. You're not doing something bedieved. You're not doing something that's wrong. You're not failing if you're not having sex the night of your wedding, but you're doing something in a way that's going to help you accomplish that level of intimacy that you're desiring most of all when you do actually have sex for the first time. I would, I would add in that they should just be aware that even though this is something brand new and every, and every, always when there's something new, it's strange at first, but it's supposed to be something beautiful and it's supposed to be something pleasurable and it's supposed to be something connective. If it's not, then you're doing something wrong and it's something that needs to be discussed and that they shouldn't be scared, nervous, uncomfortable in any way. There has to be communication about it. Yeah. So this is Yonina. There were a couple of angles that I I was thinking of as uh, Carly and Afa were speaking. So one is just a phrase that came up while both of you were speaking was Shalom Bayit. So often the mitzvah of sexual relations in the Jewish sources is referred to as shalom bayit, as the peace in the house. And I think when we understand like that's the goal, the goal of sex in Judaism is to bring a man and a woman close together. So if having sex on the first night is going to push them apart and add stress and fear and make sex something that they're not interested in and that they feel forced into, that is the opposite of the goal of what Hashem created this for. If you feel like you need more of a process and you want to spend a week getting to know each other, that is the mitzvah for you of your sex life. The next thing, I mean, a bunch of things came up, but something that I think is really important and is sometimes overlooked. It's important to talk about sexual attraction when people are dating, even in the shit system. When you set people up and your daughter or your friends are going, you know, on their first, second, third date. After the third date, I think it's already um, a reasonable question and something that you should have some sort of awareness about. Do you feel attracted to this person? Could, could you imagine yourself holding his hand? 
Okay. And so it shouldn't be something that we like never think about having a physical relationship with our partner before we get married. That it might not be, we might not be exploring our sexual relationship with our partner before we get married physically, but we should definitely be exploring it in our imagination and our fantasy, teaching our kids earlier how to be aware of their body and what they're feeling and what, you know, sexual desire or attraction feels like, knowing that you get that feeling in your stomach and knowing that you might be uh, feeling some more lubrication, your, your underwear might be damp after you guys go out on a really intimate date. Those are all really good signs green lights for this marriage. And if, if a girl says to you, or a young woman says like, oh my gosh, I just think about kissing him. And I am totally grossed out. I would definitely recommend exploring that before getting engaged. Like if it's just sexual repression or if there's, she's not attracted um, because there is an element that can grow after getting married, but it is something to be aware of. And I would also guide, and this I know is a little bit more tricky, but guide couples to talk a little bit about expectations before to start creating a foundation of sexual communication before you get married. So you already are laying the foundation. You might not have touched before, but you're already in the zone. Sexuality, like we said, it encompasses so much more than the actual act of intercourse. And there are lots of foundations you can lay within the framework of halacha. It's actually something that I um, teach my kalas all the time. I always tell them, don't jump into bed the minute you get home from your wedding. You have to spend that night getting to know each other, have some wine, eat some pizza, do, you know, connect in so many ways. You know, you don't have to jump to bed right away. How do we not address the pressure that college teachers and chassan teachers place on consummating the marriage on the first night? Education. I think we have to keep educating. I think there's a lot of of fair-based Yiddishkeit out there. And people are so afraid to do something that's a little bit different, even though they don't really know why they're doing it. Do we even know if this is halacha? There's a lot of, of, of things being done out of fear and out of ignorance. I, I don't know if people actually studied the halacha inside, and maybe that's one place to start. Let's start, you know, bringing more awareness into what the halachos are. Let's start with, you know, and that's not only educating people, but also understanding uh, the the people of today's generation. It's a completely different generation. And if there's no actual halachic backing to something that's been done for so many years and we keep doing it just because that's what's done, we also need to understand that we have to be able to evolve with the generation that's evolving. Thank you. Yonina, would you like to add something? I know that this is the reason why most people don't have these conversations or recommend having them is because we want to keep the relationship upholding these boundaries before the marriage and we don't want to overstep them and we don't want to lead to too much arousal, which will lead to touching or lead to, you know, obsessive thoughts. So what I would recommend though, because I do hear the stories of what happens when there's two very different class and teachers teaching the different things or where there isn't a good communication in general, that there can be a lot of harm caused. So I would recommend if someone feels like it would be beneficial, again, with this title of Shalom Bayit guiding us, like what will help us really be able to connect in our in a marriage. These conversations can also be had in a little bit of a more uh, distant way. So for example, uh, over WhatsApp or on the phone, instead of when you're, you know, sitting next to each other on a park bench at night and talking about like, oh, should we have sex or not? Right. So it's a different setting to send your class on a WhatsApp. Like, uh, you know, my college teacher mentioned that we should just make sure that we're in sync with expectations for the wedding night, what did your chassan teacher teach you is a very different way. And it makes it much more practical and much more like down to earth. It's not 
uh, an emotionally or sexually charged environment, even though it's always there, but it's really like very practical. Like, let's just make sure our expectations. And also you can have, it depends on the relationship and depends on the teachers, but you can also have the chasen and kala teacher make sure that they are on the to'am, that they're teaching the same thing. So the parents could check in, aligned, right? So there are other ways that we can just make sure, but it is something I think that should we should bear in mind um, that should be addressed so that it can make the beginning and the rest of the marriage go smoothly. Harley. For so long, there's been this taboo discouraging couples from talking about what's going to happen on the wedding night before they're actually at the wedding. And I find that that's where like, you don't want the first argument that a couple is having after the chuppah to be about what one has expectations that something's going to happen on the wedding night and one feels completely not ready for what those expectations are. Or even, Carly, in the cheder yuchud. Right. So if we're talking about like, you know, even hugging or kissing, if somebody's not ready for hu- for hugging or kissing in the cheder yuchud, like you just said, so being able to have that um, foundation for communicating, like it's so hard for couples to find the language to talk about sex. And it is so necessary to have conversations about sex. And I think that's also something that college teachers and parents can impart to their kids about how you should be checking in on your sex, on your sexual relationship with your spouse, the same way that you check in about making a menu for Shabbos or creating a grocery list. Like it should be that easy and second nature to have those communications within your marriage. And it's maybe not in front of your kids, but when you're giving over to prepare your children for what marriage is going to be like, or if you're teaching a college to say like, you might've not realized, but like your, your parents were likely having conversations about this. Perfect. Okay. So moving on to more fun things. And for anyone who watches TV again, I don't think a lot of practical things are portrayed. And, and since one of the titles of this conversation today is what I wish my college teacher taught me or my cousin teacher taught me, what are some practical things we can teach to prepare newlyweds for what's to come? And uh, Carly, you can start first. Yonina, I think you'll recognize my first piece of advice from the Facebook group that we both moderate on intimacy, which is so many people have shared that they did not expect how wet sexual experiences were going to become. And just having the practical advice that you should have tissues or a towel next to the bed is something that would have made their first experience so much more enjoyable and less embarrassing that you should get up and go to the bathroom afterwards to prevent a urinary tract infection, that it's good to use humor and to communicate throughout, recognizing that if what you're doing feels good and makes you feel close to your spouse, then you're doing it right. And that's the most important thing to take away. If we didn't give this practical tip of two things to take into consideration with your sexuality is your birth control. It can have effects on sexuality and hormones, like you mentioned, Carly, but even monthly hormones for a woman, a lot of times things that you like at different points in your hormonal cycle are going to change and your desire can wax and wane also with your cycle. So that's just important to know you're not going crazy. It's actually biology. Nobody knows what feels good and what you like or don't like until you try it. And if you don't like how something feels, you have to be able to communicate about that. If you do like how something feels, communicate about that too. There's no way for either one of you to read each other's minds when it comes to this. So I think for just people to understand that they have the the power 
to have a voice when it comes to this. There's no one way to do anything. Some people are night people. Some people are morning people. There's a primary and a secondary goal in everything we do in life. So over here, the primary goal is shalom bias. The primary goal is emotional and physical connection with each other. So the secondary goal is what works best. Do we see that it's not working for us at night because one of us or both of us are just too tired? Maybe we need to see if the morning is better. Have a voice, communicate about it. That's the only way to really, really create the healthiest intimate relationship. Um, I want to echo what you, Nina, just said in saying that the journey, like it also changes throughout life and that different lifestyle or different um, milestones throughout your life, like having children, hormonal changes, weight fluctuations, bodily changes will have an impact on your sexual life and on the things that feel good. Um, Sometimes something that used to feel really good might not feel so good. And something that never felt good might feel much better um, depending on what stage of life you're in. A lot of times couples get this idea that's really fictitious that you need to sacrifice good for the sake of perfect. And I think that that's something that is so easily remediated. Like if we think about sexuality in the same way we think about hunger, um, if you're hungry, you eat, right? It doesn't matter if you're having like a four course meal or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but if you're hungry, like that food serves a purpose for you and nourishes you differently. And the experience of like a four course gourmet meal is going to be a more elevated, more pleasurable, more mindful experience. You're probably going to be tuned in a little bit better to the ingredients and the textures and the tastes. But the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is also serving a purpose in that you're satiating a need that you have. And every marriage has a need for physical intimacy as well as emotional intimacy. And so I always tell the couples that I work with and help them to understand that like there is a place for peanut butter and jelly sex in your marriage. And there is a place for a four course meal in your marriage as well. And one of my favorite activities to do with couples, and it's something that I highly recommend for couples to do once they get to know each other a little bit better, is to create a sexual menu with one another of things that they like want to try, things that they want to experiment with maybe something that they would do like every once in a while, you know, like a seasonal dish, something that's like an appetizer, what's considered dessert. And to do this as an activity with one another to help to create both the foundation for language to talk about it and also to come up with ideas of how to increase sexuality and to increase curiosity with one another. Obviously, I would recommend doing it doing, doing it during a time when like, you know, there's no distractions and you're not in Nida and all of that. It's one of my favorite exercises. And so I wanted to share it here. This is all so wonderful and amazing. And we're doing this so we can source all the amazing information. There's so much more, obviously. And I highly recommend Intimate Judaism for anyone who wants to deep dive into everything that's available out there and more. But this is just a small place where you can get a lot more information because we can't put the pressure on one college teacher to teach you everything in six hours, two months before your wedding, if nothing was done in a healthy way for you before. Now I'd like to talk about one more aspect that has been brought to me as a concern by some listeners and active participants in this podcast. I'd like to talk about agency and empowerment teaching couple about being available emotionally and how does that play into a relationship? We all know you shouldn't use sex as a threat or something that you could use as a tool. 
uh, responsive desire versus spontaneous desire and, and working around with everyday life that plays into a marriage because yes, maybe you can focus on intimacy your first month exclusively, but after that, there are other things in life that can take over. What, what can we set in place and what kind of things can we teach young couples to empower them to make healthy decisions throughout their marriage? Yonina, would you like to go in first? Um, so in terms of empowerment and agency, I think that there are some basic skills that we need to be teaching our kids from a young age and helping them practice and develop them uh, throughout their life, which are crucial for them to bring into their sexual life as well. And I kind of liken it to upgoing spiral, right? Where we start teaching at a young age, a certain skill and it grows and develops with them as they grow. So one really crucial skill that comes to mind is consent. So consent means that we don't feel pressured to do anything that we don't want to do. So the flip side of that is set, learning how to set boundaries for ourselves and uphold them. And it also means that we don't pressure someone to do something they don't want to do. And we learn how to respect their boundaries and to ask them and to negotiate terms each want to do. As I'm speaking, you can obviously, I'm, I'm sure you're all thinking like, yeah, it's a great, right? It's a really important social skill. It's a really per, important interpersonal skill. And it's also really important in when someone's in a sexual relationship to be able to know what they feel comfortable with, what their boundaries are, what they're, to be able to differentiate between what they want to do and what they're willing to do, right? Because sometimes in a relationship, we'll do things for our partner, which we as ourselves might not really want to have sex right now, but we are willing to have sex, right? It's not something that we feel like is crossing a boundary for us, even though it's not our uh, desire. And I think Carly's peanut butter and jelly sandwich here or in, in Israel, we use the shawarma uh, analogy. So sometimes you really like don't have energy to cook a Shabbos meal kind of sex right now, but you're totally up for grabbing a shawarma sex, right? So learning how to negotiate that space between setting boundaries and having your partner know their boundaries and then negotiating where you can meet in between. And if you can, is a, a really crucial skill that begins by teaching our kids about consent as young kids, modeling it for them, talking to them about it. So the summer, like I was just on vacation in the pool, right? Splashing always comes up. He doesn't want to be splashed. She wants to be splashed. They're jumping, they're splashing. So just having that conversation, did you hear what he said? Okay. So what do you want to do? They're splashing now in the pool. Those are skills. Those are sex, healthy sexuality skills that you're teaching your kids throughout their life. Thank you. Yafa. You know, I do think this is a very important topic, the responsive desire versus spontaneous desire. It's something that so many of us struggle with, and I think mostly women. And I think, you know, it's a very important fundamental Torah concept where most of the things that we have to do in our lives, we do not necessarily because we're in the mood to do them and we feel like doing them. We do them because they're the right thing to do. Take any any mitzvah, for example, giving tzedakah. Like when is the last time you were in the mood of giving 10% of your income to tzedakah, right? I don't think it's something we want to do. I think it's something that we know is, is what we're supposed to do. And therefore we do it. And we usually feel good about ourselves when we do something that we're supposed to do, even if we're not in the mood of doing it. And I think that most of the time in life with anything, are you always in the mood of cooking dinner for your kids? Like literally they want food every single day. It's crazy. Even sometimes Shabbos, there are some weeks that I don't start my cooking till like two o'clock in the afternoon because I'm just not in the mood of doing it. There is this chemical concept 
you know, in the world of chemistry called activation energy, where you get the energy to do something once you begin. So for example, you decide one night that that's it. Tomorrow, I'm going to start going walking every day at six o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be out the door and, and walking. And it's in the moment, it's like, you know, of course I'm going to do it. And you set your alarm, you go to bed, the alarm rings at 5.30. And what's your reaction? What was I thinking yesterday? Am I crazy? Right? Of course you don't want to get up at 5.30 to go walking. So you have two options. You're going to hit snooze, go back to sleep and forget about it. Or you're going to rub your eyes. You're going to sit up. You're going to put your walking clothes on. You're going to put your sneakers on. You're going to get up and do it. And then you're going to develop the energy. You're going to activate the desire to do it. You're going to feel great about yourself. There's almost no one who's going to regret doing that ever. Obviously, you know, you need to broaden the boundaries. Super important. We can't become martyrs and we can't let ourselves become shmatas. Of course not. But I think we need to understand that once we know what's important, If the primary goal is to make sure that we have healthy intimacy in our marriage, then the secondary goal is, why is it not working for me right now? Why am I never feeling like I'm in the mood? Why am I, there might be some physical reasons. Are you pregnant? Are you, are you breastfeeding? Sometimes, you know, hormonally, that can be very difficult. Are you on a medication that might be interfering with your desire? Maybe you're just exhausted. You have little kids. Let's figure out how to do it. And also, by the way, this goes back to what we were saying before about communication with probably telling your husband, I don't know, I'm just feeling tired right now, whatever, but let's see what we can do to help me. Maybe, maybe you can help me activate the desire. And slowly you could communicate about what, what's feeling good right now. Maybe right now, this I'm not feeling this right now, right? Communication and understanding that this is a priority and therefore maybe I just need to activate the energy. I think can really, really get us a long way. And as you mentioned, it could be peanut butter, it could be shawarma, that's fine, okay? But the point is not always, we have to make sure that it's not every day, right? But the point is that I really, I think that this is a a Torah concept, um, working on responsive desire. Um, This is Carly. I love the illustration of activation energy. It's such a beautiful illustration of responsive desire because that is exactly the definition of, responsive desire. So some people have what we call a spontaneous desire, which is like what you see in the movies where, you know, boy sees attractive girl, girl sees attractive boy, hormones go flying, and then they can't get their hands off of each other. That's spontaneous desire. And the majority of people, and especially the majority of women have what's called responsive desire, which is more like that activation energy where sometimes you have to like get on the train in order to start feeling that desire and feel like you are in the mood to have more intimacy, to have more touch, to have more feeling. I do want to bring up, and I I hope this doesn't open a can of worms, Tally Rosenbaum, who is the podcast host of Intimate Judaism, wrote an article called I Am His Vessel. And it was published originally in Kolech in 2012 in Hebrew. And really what it's about is the negative impact of Kala teachers giving over to women, that it's her responsibility to be available, quote unquote, for her husband sexually in order to prevent him from spilling seed or ejaculating extra vaginally. It's really important that when you're giving over the healthy sexuality to individuals in relationships, 
it's important to separate out like what's his responsibility and what's her responsibility and then what's the responsibility as the couple. And I, I really like the idea of seeing the responsibility of the couple as the primary influence. And that is the priority that needs to be emphasized. But I do think that understanding the difference between responsive desire and spontaneous desire can be a remedy to this phenomenon of needing to constantly feel available. With some of the couples that I've worked with, sometimes people will use this as like an excuse to never be interested in sex. And they'll be like, oh, well, I just, I have responsive desire, so I can't ever get in the mood. He's never doing anything romantic. And I'm saying he, because it's primarily women that experience responsive desire. He never does anything romantic and he never, you know, he never rubs my back and he doesn't buy me flowers and I never get any jewelry. And that's why I'm never in the mood to have sex. And the response to that is that like responsive desire, like there's so self-work that you can do there in order to look at everyday tasks that are done as sexual acts that you can see as attractive and arousing. So like there's this phenomenal author, Emily Nagoski, who wrote a book called Come As You Are. It should definitely be in the podcast notes. And she says that like sex starts with the linen closet, that like seeing your husband put the laundry folded away into the linen closet, like that is an act of foreplay. Um, putting your coat off, taking your coat off of the dining room chair and putting it in the coat closet, like that is an act of foreplay. Seeing your husband learn Torah and give over a really great Devar Torah at the Shabbos table, that is an act of foreplay. So like it is, it requires not just for the rom- acts of romance to be done, which, you know, everybody could benefit from, Right. I'm not going to say that they're a bad idea, but that it also requires the self-work to see everyday tasks as an act of foreplay. And then you conceptualizing them as something that's within the framework of sex, which I think kind of brings us full circle to where we started this podcast in the separation of sex and sexuality and wanting to say that sex is not just an act of intercourse, but it is an overall attitude for a couple. And that is the primary influence and the primary goal is to create that intimacy and sexuality with a couple, which will ultimately, you know, bring people closer to each other and hopefully to Hashem as well. Yes. Thank you so much. And one more thing I wanted to add that I also heard Tali talk about the Intimate Judaism podcast is that when a woman is going on a date, she usually spends some time getting ready, putting on makeup, putting on perfume. And all of that is that emotional, mental preparation for intimacy later on in the night if that happens. So during the day, if you're not communicating with your spouse and you're not talking, and then there's like the switch that's supposed to happen at the end of the day, there's no room for that foreplay. And yes, foreplay doesn't have to look like classical sexual foreplay. But if you are engaged in some sort of conversation and you're preparing mentally for something, that's a way that within a busy schedule, you can prepare yourself uh, mentally, physically for something later on in the day or in the morning, as the alpha mentioned, depending on what type of person you are. When we're talking about sex and there are a lot of dysfunctions or issues that couples have, at the end of the day, we don't want people having sex because they need to be having sex or because they should be having sex or because they're worried what's going to happen to their marriage if they don't, their husband's going to cheat, they're going to grow apart. I'm talking straight to the listeners here. If you are experiencing sex as a burden and something that for over six months, you are constantly forcing yourself to do for the sake of your marriage, but you're really not feeling it, 
I highly, highly, highly recommend reaching out to talk to someone about it and figure out what's going on. Okay. Because you should be benefiting from the sex you're having. This should be something that you feel like when you have sex, it makes your life better. You should be having an incentive that's not fear-based that you feel like really the sex that you're having is worth having and you're gaining from it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an orgasm, but it could be so many different levels and layers. That's just really important to, um, to put out there and to be aware. Yeah. When I give couples classes, I tell them the way you treat each other outside the bedroom is a direct reflection of how you'll treat each other inside the bedroom. And I tell specifically to each one, the way you treat him outside the bedroom is how how he'll treat you in the bedroom. And the way you treat her out the bedroom is the way she'll treat you in the bedroom. It's all connected. There's, we we don't live in, it's, it's not compartmentalized. They reflect each other completely. And it's really hard for us because a lot of times we're taught that for so long to set a lot of really strong boundaries around our sexuality so that we can save it for the proper time and space and kind of train ourselves out of that. So you have to take time getting yourself used to. And I remember once in the course I was taking, someone said that, um, someone said to her, like, having my husband tell me that I look sexy feels like unkosher, but like, what's he supposed to say? Like, you look like such an anxious pile. Like that doesn't sound <laughs> like sexual at all. Like what, what language can we develop that feels okay to us. It doesn't feel like inappropriate, but it also is in within the realm of the sexual sexuality and being able to create and maintain. It's really like a flame, our sexual tension in our relationship that we really want to, to protect your, your marriage. This relationship is the place for that. So making time to learn and create and explore is Let's talk about orgasms. I, I kind of want to dial it back to the question that you had asked about, like, how do you prepare somebody for marriage right before the wedding? Like, what's the one of the biggest puzzle pieces that tends to be missing? And I think that talking about pleasure and particularly female pleasure and female orgasm is something that tends to be glossed over. And it's like not something that is really explicitly discussed. I was very lucky to have a wonderful college teacher who was very, very, very right-wing yeshivish. And she gave over an amazing hashkafa about female pleasure and orgasms, which I very much appreciated. Hashem made only women with the clitoris, which is the only women out of humans, mammals, have a clitoris, which has absolutely no function other than to receive pleasure. And we know from a lot of research in sexuality and human sexuality that the majority of women orgasm via stimulation of the clitoris. And for everybody that feels different, um, the things that feel good for one person aren't going to feel good for another person and vice versa. But I think that making sure that people know that the most likely way to have an orgasm is not going to be through penetration is something that is really important for college teachers and uh, mothers to give over to their daughters and also for chasen teachers to give over to and fathers and mothers to give over to chasanim so that they don't expect somebody to be um, experiencing an orgasm from penetration alone my two sons an orgasm one they are awesome two they're not mandatory and three the pressure to have them usually makes it impossible to happen so practically we started talking about a masturbation in young kids and then we said, when it gets to be, you know, teens, it's more complicated. Halakhically for girls, there are postgame who hold that is also forbidden for girls to masturbate. But from what I know, the majority of postgame do not hold that it is asr. And even those that do, do say that it is more lenient than for boys. 
Um, if you look at the sources, it's very, very fascinating, very interesting, the different approaches and statements that we find in the Gemara about women touching their genitals. But why am I saying all of this is because it is something which you mentioned unorthodox. I did, uh, my orthodox life, I didn't watch it, but I did hear there was a part where the mother gave her daughter a vibrator when she was a young teen and told her, like, go and go and explore your body and find your own pleasure. So I know for most people, that's not that kind of really in your face isn't the kind of approach they have. But when we do talk to our daughters about getting their periods and we talk to them about all the trials and tribulations of being a woman, it is important to offset it with also talking about pleasure. And we might even want to mention how like you you might notice, right, when you're in the shower sometimes and the water streams over your private parts, it might feel good. You just, you, you know, you should know how she made our bodies so that when we, our private parts are stimulated or feel some sort of touch, it can feel good, right? That's like a more, a dean, like a more simple, gentle way to kind of broach that subject and hint at it. And definitely college teachers, I recommend, should teach their, recommend that their college um, learn or start exploring, touching themselves in a pleasurable way. It's really important studies show that women who are able who to know their own body and the way they experience pleasure are much, much more likely to experience pleasure and orgasms with their partner. And I keep on saying pleasure instead of orgasm because the chase after orgasm, there's a, a phrase about covet, about honor, that like the more you chase after honor, uh, then it's going to run away. And then someone started running away from honor and he looked, said, why, why isn't honor coming? I'm running away from it. And he said, because keep on looking off to, over your shoulder to see if he's uh, following you. Right? So the same with orgasm. Like you like, oh yeah, whatever. But like you keep on checking, like, why isn't it happening? Why isn't it happening? That stress is really going to backfire. So putting pleasure as our goal instead of orgasm is a much uh, more sure way to actually achieve orgasm. And again, it's a journey. It might take months. It might take a while. If you see like it's taking too long, I would say over six months of exploring on your own and with a partner, not just penetration, using other kinds of stimulation. It could be fingers, it could be mouth, it could be vibrators that I do recommend, you know, reading a book, reaching out to a sex educator or a coach or a therapist, and just learning other other ways you might want to experiment. Yeah, if you don't reach orgasm every single time, that's still okay, but it doesn't mean you're not experiencing pleasure. So when pleasure is the goal, it's always more attainable than if orgasm is the goal. But I think what's important also to understand is that there are so many different ways of reaching orgasm. Everyone just thinks of like the stereotypical, you know, penetration or, you know, um, intercourse. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I heard you mention, you know, fingers or whatever it is, but there's also upper body pleasure that people don't realize. It's not only lower body, you know, pleasure. And the goal is for you to, to recognize what are the places that give you the most pleasure? As I said earlier, earlier, no two bodies are the same. No two dynamics are the same. No pain, no gain, right? Anything good, anything pleasurable has to come with effort. It has to come with putting stepping up and putting out for it. So you want to have the healthiest, most pleasurable, intimate and sex life that you could have. You do have to put in the work. It's not like the movies show us, as you said before, Carly, if you're going to be, you know, judging your sex life by the movies, good luck. It's not going to, it's not going to work out that way. And the very first thing is also related to what you said before is the fact that after every sex scene in a movie, they just jump up, put their pants on and jump out the door. And we're like, are you serious? where's your towel? You know, like that doesn't happen in real life. So we already know that, that it's fake. Let's get rid of expectations. Let's live in our specific reality. 
What brings me personally pleasure? What is our dynamic? It doesn't have to be what we think is normal, what everyone else is doing, what I think I should be doing. Anything is okay. Whatever works for you is okay. The goal should be to bring each other and together as much pleasure as possible. Carly? I want to just re-emphasize what Yonina said and Yafa about emphasizing pleasure over the orgasm. I think that that is relevant in so many life cycle changes, having babies. Um, If you're on an antidepressant, sometimes orgasms become impossible through no fault of anybody's own, just a side effect of medication. And so emphasizing that pleasure should be the goal. And as long as we're busting orgasm myths, um, we can also just bust the myth of simultaneous orgasms, right? For most couples, most time, it doesn't happen together. And we're talking about practical tips to talk about taking turns, right? Like, and as long as we're here, generally for many couples, what works better is for the man to pleasure the woman. And if orgasms are on the menu for tonight, for her to achieve orgasm or get very close before attending to him, because just physiologically in terms of the body's works, it's usually um, more beneficial, but again, whatever works for you. So no, it's not gonna happen simultaneously, probably. Okay, and on a closing note, I wanna mention that We might not want to bombard a three-year-old with all the information out there just in case, but we want to try to see or look out for signs when they are curious or when they are wondering. We want to create a space where they feel comfortable coming to you with their questions. We want to uh, receive their questions or their curiosity. They might not be able to even formulate their questions, so... It's emotional awareness. It's being in tune. It's calling body parts by their names. It's communication, eye contact, and being present. Thank you so much, everyone. We did this. I cannot thank you so much for bearing with us until the end. I hope you really benefited from this podcast. I want to thank all our panelists along with our fans who have requested this episode to happen. Also, I hope it was worth waiting for. We've been sitting, producing, and editing this podcast over the last two months. Make sure to reach out to me with your comments and your feedback, and I hope to come back to you with more valuable content. Don't forget to share this podcast with a friend or family member, and tune in next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.